My name is Riley. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the pastor of this church, and it's a joy to be bringing to you God's Word for us today. Last week, Lewis Barron, one of our new members, although he's not new to us, preached what I thought was a, a fantastic message on joy. Um, from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, that Mick read earlier, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And it brought me a lot of joy, not to, just to hear Lewis preach that message, but to see how as a congregation, our church loves a message on joy, leans into a message on joy, applies a message of joy. I've heard many people were affected by that message. I've been feasting on it myself this week. Uh, and it, it brings me a lot of joy to know that that's, that's a happy topic for our congregation and our church. And I wanted to actually change up the schedule. I was meant to be preaching from Romans 3 today, but I actually wanted to keep going in on the theme of joy. Uh, because I believe that one thing I want us to continue to grow in as a church is not just our personal individual joy, but our corporate joy. Our joy expressed as a local church as we gather together as God's people. And so I've entitled this message today, Gathering with Gladness. Gathering with Gladness. And I've even got a subtitle for you. Cultivating Corporate Joy. Gathering with Gladness. Cultivating Corporate Joy. As I meet new people that visit our church and as new members come and join, one of the most common things I hear is that people love the joy of our church. People can sense the real joy that people have in Jesus Christ and the real joy that people have in one another in this local church. And that brings me a lot of joy and satisfaction because that was my first experience of sovereign grace. Back in September of 2012, when Maddie and I, she was pregnant with Evie, we walked into Southern Grace Church, Sydney, at Normanhurst Boys High. We were a little bit late. We were greeted by the friendly uh, Glenn Thompson. We took our seats next to Janelle Smith, who is now Janelle Pierce, or Nellie, if you know her. And within about five minutes, we were... We were over the moon because we were in a church as we were visiting and trying to figure out if this is where God would have us that was full of genuine joy in Christ. The singing, the clapping, the preaching once we got there was gospel-centered and it seemed genuine. We'd been part of a, a great church, a gospel-centered church, but a church that was probably lacking in corporate joy. Uh, that was probably evidenced by me being the loudest person in, which is not that hard, but there was no one else singing. And so it was really bad because it was the band singing and me singing. And that was you know, not too much more. And so to come into a church where I was with an anthem of people that were like, I can't believe this is true. The gospel is real. We instantly felt at home and we didn't look for any other church and we haven't left yet. <laughs> We're still here. And it's a joy to know that that is one of the things that marks us as a church plant out of that church. But despite this, one of the things I'm concerned for us as a church plant is that we not only have this joy, but we maintain it and we actually grow in it. I'm concerned that if we don't give attention to being joyful as a gathering, something that we've cherished, something that we've enjoyed, we will actually begin to lose. Why is this? Because if we don't go after it, if we don't pursue it, if we don't practice it ourselves, 
bit by bit, it will just die away. As more and more people join, if they don't bring their joy with them, it'll be increasingly a smaller number of people that are joyful corporately and glad in the gathering. I don't want it to become a relic of years past or for our story to be, oh, do you remember the joyful first years? But now it's just tepid. I want to ensure that as a church, we gather with gladness and that it's something that all of us pursue and practice. And to do this, for this to actually be a reality, it's not just a matter of personality. That's not what I'm talking about. We must have a theologically and biblically informed view, not just of what we're doing when we gather, worshiping God, preaching the gospel, teaching the kids, doing the music, not just why we do it because of who God is and what he's done, but how we are meant to do it. Because how we worship is important. It matters to God. We are steeped in expressive individualism, you do you, But actually, the Bible is not an individualist document. The Bible and God, through the Word, tells us how He wants to be worshipped. And so as His people, as His redeemed ones, our instinct ought to be, well, Lord, how do you want us to worship you? We have our personalities, we have our pasts, we have our stories, but our instinct as a church ought to be, how do you want me to worship you when I gather with your people? By saying God cares how much and how we worship, I'm not referring to music style, let me be clear, but to our very hearts. And if there's one word, I think, which encapsulates so much of what the Bible calls us and invites us to as his people when we gather, it's the word gladness or gladly. The Bible has so many different words to explain this reality of gladness uh, that in one major study by Randy Alcorn, Alcorn, he lists all these words. This is no minor theme in the Bible. This is not just a Riley thing. This is not just a chipper Americana sovereign grace thing. This is a biblical theological principle. These are words that the Bible uses to explain This word gladness, happiness, joy, enjoy, rejoice, merry, pleasure, delight, celebration, cheerful, please, pleasant, laugh, laughter, smile, jubilant, jubilee, relax, rest, feast, festival, and exult. Now, all those words appear 1,700 times. You add in every time the word blessed is used to describe being happy in the Lord, and we get to 2,000 references in the Bible to joy. No minor theme, not just for the charismatic, loud, tall people. (laughs) Now, it is a happy cultural reality in Southern Grace churches around the world, and I've been to many Southern Grace churches around the world, that we are marked by joy in our Sunday gatherings. Loud singing, warm greetings, hearty amens, shouts of joy, jumping up and down even, tears of gratitude, bowing in worship, passionate devotion, attentiveness during sermons, and eagerness and anticipation for the Sunday gathering. And why is this? Well, these are outworkings of a people seeking to apply the commands in Scripture that we see replete through the Bible, that our worship ought to be white hot, not lukewarm. 
It is born out of a people who take what the Bible says about how we are to worship and try and apply it and seek it out and be like, this is for me. This is not just for them. It's for me, and I'm going to come and bring it in the gathering. And if there's one text that captures and cultivates that reality, it's Psalm 100. Psalm 100 has been used by the church over two millennia to be a clarion call to how and why and the what of worship. And so as I read Psalm 100 for us and preach on it today, I'm just going to ask to do us, make us do something physical, which is I want us to stand for the reading of God's Word. We don't do this every week, but today, if you can, if you can't, that's okay. But if you can, stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Please be seated. Let me pray for us as we preach. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My hope is to lay a biblical and theological foundation to cultivate corporate joy for the best day of the week. That's my aim. I want to lay a foundation that we can be reminded of and build upon so that all of us as a church contribute to this corporate joy. I'm not just talking about singing or music style, raising hands. I'm thinking of our whole gathering, welcoming, set up, pack down kids, Prayer time, preaching time, all of it ought to be marked with a certain how. And I believe that how is a glad how. I have three points for us this morning. My first point, point number one, if you are taking notes, the invitation to glad gatherings. The invitation to glad gatherings. Look down, if you have your Bibles in front of you, to Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. This is an invitation from the psalmist. Yes, it's a command, but it's not a command that functions in the same way like do not murder. It's more of an invitation to God's people to do what they want to do because they have the Holy Spirit within them. If you remember last week, Lewis gave the, uh, the illustration of how we imagine God's demeanor towards us changes how we receive his words. And he you know, had this illustration of, you know, the words, come here. And if you imagine God being like, come here, you know, oh, okay, you come in crouching. But if you imagine God saying, come here, it changes how you view it and how you go about it. And I believe it's the same in Psalm 100. This is not a... Lift your hands, raise your voice, you must be glad in me. 
that's not, that's not this command. This is an invitation to God's people to glad worship. They're appealing to you. If you are saved in Christ, you have his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit within you wants to enjoy God with all of your being. We're commanded to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Holy Spirit wants you to do that. So this is an invitation to do what the Holy Spirit in you wants to do and to be a part of it. And so the way this is structured is this psalm has three invitations in verse 1 and 2, and then three motivations in verse 3, then three invitations again in verse 4, and then three motivations in verse 5. Um, And at this point, I'm just going to focus on the invitations in those verses so that we can see that the Bible expects how we are to worship, not just why or just what. If you've ever received a gift that was just so good, have you ever received a gift that was just so good, you're kind of at a loss. How do, I, how do I thank this person? This was so generous, so thoughtful, so on the money. I'm definitely never going to re-gift this. This is just a perfect gift. You, you lost the words. You, you hug, you thank, but you, you can't quite do it. Well, Psalm 100 acts as as a way for us as redeemed people to know how God wants us to thank him for the gifts he's given us. And so we are given three invitations if I summarize them all. Firstly, if you want to know how to thank God, this is how he wants you. Firstly, we are invited to shout for joy to the Lord, verse 1. We are invited to shout, shout for joy. It's actually there in Scripture. Um, The ESV says, make a joyful noise. The NIV translates it, shout for joy. The Hebrew word can mean a a battle cry or an exultant, triumphant sound. But you put the meanings together and really we're talking about an exultant noise that's not not a whimper, it's not tepid, it's, 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 it's like jets taking off. That's the kind of noise we're talking about. And that's what God wants to hear from his people. It's a visceral, discernible, loud, joyful, and happy. It's not an arms-crossed, mumbling, deadpan, How great is our God. Sing with me, how great. (laughs) I don't think he's that great. it, it, It would appear that you don't think he's that great by the way you are singing. God's inviting us to join in the wonder of who he is and make it evident. Charles Spurgeon said this, our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts and the gratitude which we should cherish for his mercies. Secondly, we're invited to worship and serve him with glad hearts. Verse 2a, serve the Lord with, what does it say? Gladness, hence where I get gathering with gladness from. This psalm is inviting us to worship the Lord with a I get to do this, not I've got to do this type of worship. It's a let me at it. It's a coming to church rowdy and ready. It's a cheerful service. It's a cheerful service during setup and pack down, during working in kids or in welcoming, making coffees or serving in the band, knowing that you're not just serving his people, but as you do all these acts, you are serving your God. And so how joyful, how, how amazing that you who were once on your way to hell are now a servant of God and he delights in your service. 
Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 48 warns God's people of not serving with gladness. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all these things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. And commenting on that verse, John Piper, in his John Piper way, says, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Serve the Lord with gladness. That's fitting. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves what? A cheerful giver. Thirdly, we're invited to come into his presence with singing, thanksgiving, and praise, putting together 2B and chapter, uh, verse 4. We're invited to come into his presence with singing, thanksgiving, and praise. It's a, it's a picture of dancing and triumph and praise and celebration. It, it's, a, it's a visceral image, a party image, really. It's this idea, if you think of the Old Testament people, they, they would go to temple or the tent of meeting, depending on which era of the Israelites, and they would come from all their different tribes and areas, and they would make their way, and God is saying to his people, as you enter, come in through the gateways with thanksgiving on your hearts, even before you come to the service, and come in with songs already bursting forth, come in with praises, come in, and it's not just songs because we like, you know, it's not like the way we sing radio songs, it's, it's in his presence, it's to him, we are singing to him because he is our God, and for what? he has done. So feel free next Sunday to enter in through the bin gate uh, down there with loud songs. Psalm 122 verse 1 captures this reality so well, and I would love this to be really the, the posture of our hearts. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So In these verses, verse 1 and 2 and verse 4, we're invited to shout for joy or make a joyful noise, to serve with gladness, and to come with singing, thanksgiving, and praise. The question, perhaps you might be thinking, why does God want us to worship him like this? Why does God put so many verses in the Bible about this? Why does he care? Because the reality is, it's actually really hard to worship emotionally and with our being and with joy because life is vanity and life is tough. And sometimes we have good weeks, but often they're so mixed and there's so much going on. It'd be so much easier if the verses were just serve the Lord, come into his presence. That's it. You just do the action. Just come to church and listen to a sermon. Do some things. But the way Christianity has been designed, the way God actually wants for his people is not just action, but attitude. That's what makes it so different to all the religions of the world. In Islam, if you pray the five prayers, or pray five times a day, you don't have to feel it. You don't have to mean it. You just do it. But God, that's not how he wants to be worshipped. He gives us Psalm 100, 2,000 references to joy, happiness, and gladness. Defines saving faith as what? Finding a treasure hidden in a field and for the joy you sell everything you have to get him. 
Here's why. It's the gladness that really glorifies God. It's the gladness of our worship that glorifies God. Jonathan Edwards in the uh, 1700s said this, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. You see, mere declaration only goes so far in glorifying God. Satan knows that God is omnipotent, all-knowing, and all-present. Satan knows that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Satan knows that Jesus is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. He knows that. And in one way, he gives glory to God because he can't deny the truth. But the way God is really magnified is when his people enjoy that truth and delight in that truth and rejoice in that truth. It's the gladness of your worship that really glorifies God. Because the gladness says, you are worthy of all my time, my energy, my affections. You are worthy of the deepest part of my heart and my soul. It's my privilege to serve you. Yes, it's my duty. But more than that, it's my delight. I get to do this. I don't have to. As John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So, I trust you get the picture. It's not just what we do that matters. It's not even just why we do it. But the Lord also wants the how to be informed and to be shaped according to his will. He wants glad, joyful, happy, heated, white-hot, inexpressible, fervent worshipers. 1 Peter 1.8 expresses it so well. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with with glory. Now, I'm still on point one, but I I do want to make a caveat here. I think there is inherent difficulty whenever we speak of emotional obedience in the Bible. I don't want to back down from it. The Bible calls for emotional obedience. God cares about our actions and our attitudes. But as you know, our emotional life is not so simple. So I want to provide a few caveats to help round this out so it's not just a rah, 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 rah message. Okay, caveat number one, truly God-glorifying emotional expression is a miracle. Truly God-glorifying emotional expression is a miracle. Only by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working on our hearts can we experience the true gladness and joy that God wants from us. I'm not arguing for mere emotions themselves or emotionalism. The psalmist is calling for is a heart affected by the Spirit in response to the person of God, celebrating with all their soul and all their body. And therefore, you can cry out to God to move upon you by His Spirit to increase your heart so that your affections and physical expression follow. Secondly, Second caveat, our emotional ranges and expressions differ from person to person and season to season. You don't all have to be loud and expressive like me. Please do not. 
Uh, you know, I cry watching kids' movies all the time. Invariably, I cry. I just, I, I'm an emotional person. Please don't try and be like me if that's not you. Some of you didn't even cry on your wedding day or when you held your first child. I don't understand that in any way, but God has made us all differently. We all experience emotion and express emotion differently, let alone factoring in different mental health situations, life seasons, and sicknesses. And I'm not only referring to our glad-hearted emotion when I speak of positive emotions. God uses hard emotions like sorrow and repentance and guilt to bring about our emotional expression toward him. But we just have to be aware that we all experience this differently. And we have to have grace for that. But I think what is key is that the highest, brightest, warmest, and deepest affections that you have as you are reserved for God alone. That's how you be faithful. The highest, brightest, warmest, and deepest affections that you have as God has made you, that you reserve them and direct them and give them to God and God primarily. So the question is not, am I like Lewis, who's very passionate, but do I give my best to my God? Or am I spreading my love out and actually giving my deepest affections elsewhere? The third caveat is that our emotional experience and expressions must be fueled primarily by our heart affections, not our circumstances or our environment. Mood lighting, synths, smoke machines, deep bass, and suddenly you're going to feel emotion, just naturally. It's just going to, it's going to come, and you're like, oh, that's why I cry in kids' movies, because it's like, oh, yeah, even watching, was it Sing 2? I cried in Sing 2 when the lion comes out, and, and just, oh, my goodness. But that's, that's not worship. That's just emotionalism. That's not what I'm, I'm saying we need to conjure up. Alternatively, the worst seasons of our life, either by suffering or our sin, do not mean that we cannot be joyful in our praise. Instead, they're designed to intensify our praise. So we're not to be moved merely by music or the wonder of words or the joy of seeing our friends at church or all those things. We're to be moved by God himself, who he is and what he's done. And that leads to our second point. So the first point was the invitation to to glad gatherings. Second point is the fuel for glad gatherings, and this is vital. Remember, this psalm gives us invitation and motivation, uh, and we need those motivations to fuel these affections so that our heart is full with God, and then it comes out publicly when we gather. So there's three motivations in this passage. First motivation, who he is. Look at verse 3 and verse 5. Know that the Lord, he is God. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So the psalmist is calling us to worship exuberantly because of who God is. That he's God, the creator, the redeemer. That he's the one who is good, who's faithful and true and keeps his promises. So he's calling us not to just mere worship, but to worship him. Second motivation, what he has done. So first motivation, who God is. Second motivation, what he has done. Look at verse 3, the second part of it. It is he who made us 
And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is not just a general statement of creation. Yes, because we're created by God and are his subjects and creatures, we should praise him. What the psalmist is talking about here is the reality that God made Israel his people. He chose them out of all the people groups. He brought them from slavery in Egypt. He led them like a shepherd through the wilderness into the promised land. He bought them with a price and uniquely calls them his own. And so the psalmist is calling upon these great acts that God has done, that he bought himself a people. Isaiah 43 recounts some of these realities and these are true for us, but these are true for them as well. Listen to how God views his people. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. These glorious realities haven't vanished with the people of Israel. Now they are true for us in a greater way. For God himself came from heaven to earth as Jesus Christ. And he walked through the waters and went through the fire in order to redeem us, his people. He is the great shepherd of the sheep who sought out us, his lost sheep, and called us to be his very own. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What greater motivation could we have for gathering with gladness than the reality of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? Friends, we were on our way to hell. We were literally going to go to hell for all eternity. No way out, no hope, no righteous leg to stand on. But instead, the good shepherd put his throat in the mouth of the wolf of death so that we, his sheep, may go free. <laughs> when we focus on what he has done for us in Christ, it is so much easier to shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. It is so much easier to come into his presence with singing. Friends, there is no song without sight. And we must get a sight of the hill called Calvary. And that will help us to be filled with the types of affection and emotion and expression that we're invited to in this psalm. Who God is what he's done, third motivation, who we worship with. We gather with gladness because of who we worship, what he has done, but who we worship with is a major factor. We worship in the company of blood-bought saints. Look at verse 3 again. It is he who made, what does it say? Us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Look around. 
Those in this room who have put their faith in Christ are eternally beloved by God, chosen by Him before the foundation of the earth. Christ shed His blood to purchase them so that He could be with them forever. He gathers them together into a local church, chooses to bless and dwell with us in a unique way that's different to when you have your quiet time. It's different when you're on your own. When we are the church, the Bible says we are God's temple and he blesses and dwells with us. And so, therefore, this is a happy company. We get to worship with God's people. This is unique In all of your week, you don't get a moment like this. And therefore, it ought to be like a joyful, glad family reunion. You could gather all the world leaders, all the best sportsmen and women, all the best poets, singers, dancers, builders, and scientists. That group would be nothing compared to this group. Nothing because of how precious each one of you are in God's sight. And then we get to be here together with each other. We should be pinching ourselves. I think of it sort of like Christmas, the Christmas feast. What makes Christmas lunch so special? I know not everyone's Christmas lunches are special because of various circumstances, but perhaps in time, in, in, the, in your past, you've had special Christmas lunches. There's, there's wonderful food, there's beautiful decorations, there's great presents. But if it was just you in a room with a beautifully laid out table and amazing food and just you on your own, it wouldn't be half of what it is. What makes Christmas lunch so special is when all the family and all the kids and everyone's gathered and there's joy. Every Sunday is Christmas lunch. That's what makes this special. Psalm 16 verse 2 and 3 says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you, first and foremost. But then look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. There ought to be an anticipation on a Sunday morning that I get to be with the excellent ones today. I get to be with the ones whom is my delight. You might be excited about who you might meet in the week or if you go into special places, but most of all, this room ought to be something that makes you glad to come on a Sunday morning. Okay, so to fuel us to be glad in our gatherings, we need to know who God is, what he's done, and who we worship with. Joy, gladness, and happiness is the fruit of the gospel. It's the fruit of knowing Christ. We're not trying to staple joy on and just be chipper and glad, like, come on, let's do it, woo! You know, you've been to school assemblies or things where it's like trying to get everyone excited or football games when someone's yeah, come on, let's cheer. But no, this, is, this ought to come from believing in the gospel and it's a true fruit that comes from there. So we need to fuel ourselves. Finally, point three, how do we take some next steps in order to put this into practice? You're probably afraid right now. You're thinking, oh my goodness, what what is Riley asking for? Uh, But I want to try and help us to put these scriptures into operation. So point number three, the pursuit of glad gatherings. So point one, the invitation. Point two, what was it? The fuel, there you go. Point three, the pursuit of glad gatherings. James chapter one is a really formative verse for us as a church. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
And verse 25 says, he will be blessed in his doing. Friends, I want us to be blessed in our doing. And so I'm going to try and help us be doers of what this scripture is inviting us to do. So I've got three application points for us this morning. First one, our gladness in gathering doesn't all have to look the same, but it has to look like something. Okay, Our gladness corporately doesn't all have to look the same, but it does have to look like something for each of us. What is your highest, most vigorous, most thankful, most jubilant self? Bring that self with you to church on a Sunday. Tell your face to be that self and your body to be that self. Some of us have resting board face. Tell your face, tell your body, tell your arms, tell your tone to get into conformity with your heart. If you love God, look like it when you're here in the gathering. What does your current level of gladness in serving and singing and gathering indicate to others about how worthy you think God is? That's another helpful way of thinking about it. Now, we can't judge people's hearts by their faces, but for yourself, self-reflection, what does my current expressiveness and tone and disposition tell others about how much I value God? John Piper says this, lukewarm affection for God gives the impression that he is moderately pleasing. Isn't that so underwhelming? Lukewarm affection for God gives the impression that he is moderately pleasing. Do you believe God is moderately pleasing? Like a cup of tea and a bicky. That's good. Like a cup of tea and a bicky. That's pretty good. Is that about as good as you think God is? Or do you think he's slightly better than that? I think God's calling us to white hot worship, not lukewarm worship. Lukewarm is about 25 degrees. You drink a cup of water that's 25 degrees, you're like, oh, it's, yes, that's not very nice. That's not very good. White hot, to get something white hot is 1,300 degrees Celsius. Okay? It's a big difference. And I think the psalmist and the whole Bible is pointing us toward white hot worship. Because God is not moderately pleasing. He's infinitely pleasing, infinitely good, infinitely gracious. Now, in Sydney, we're all like pretty, you know, Australians are not very expressive people. So I get it. There's cultural realities, all of that. But you know for yourself what is your deepest, highest, most jubilant emotion. Bring that self with you to church and put that self on. Romans 12, 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in Spirit. Do not be slothful in zeal. It's possible to just come to church and just have a cup of tea and a bicky worship. <laughs> but actually, the scriptures, we need to be conformed to the scriptures, tell us don't be like that. That's not right. Be fervent, seethe, be made to boil by the Holy Spirit in the way that we serve God and his people. Psalm 34, verse 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant. Do you look radiant because you're looking upon God? 
Now, a caveat to this, let's not be the gladness police. That would be so unmotivating. Let's enjoy the fact that God has made us all different. Let's not look around and judge people like, oh, they're, they're not gathering with gladness. That's not what I want. That is absolutely not what I'm looking for. I'm saying for each one of us to, to come aware of how can I grow in this? So it doesn't have to look the same. It has to look like something. Number two, application point two, plan to bring your gladdest self. Plan to bring your gladdest self to our gathering. If you are theologically convinced in what I'm preaching today, that it is our gladness that glorifies God and that he cares about how we gather, then plan beforehand to bring your gladdest self to church operationalize scriptures to help you. That's why I spent so long in point two. These fuel yourself. Don't think just magically it's going to happen when you turn up. That would probably just be emotionalism. We need to plan to be ready to enjoy the Lord. We need to have scriptures like Psalm 118 verse 24 ready to go. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Plan to come with gladness. Prepare for the gathering. Remind yourself of truth. Fuel yourself. Shake yourself out of slumber. Go to bed on time. Wake up early enough so that you're not drowsy. Don't stumble in. Arrive early. Serve with excellence. All these things can help us to actually make this truly the best day of the week. So plan it. Schedule it. Say no to other things so that you can say yes to this. And point number three, be glad in all we do as we gather. I want to be very clear. I'm not just talking about singing. The gathering involves everything, every part of our corporate life on a Sunday. Yes, it does involve singing. And I want us to continually be glad in our song to sing with gladness, smile, jump, raise your hands, clap, shout, harmonize, do whatever you can to express in a way that's ordered and beautiful your joy in the Lord. As we sing, focus yourself on the text. Focus yourself on the, the truths that we sing, and that will help you to be glad. That's what I was chatting with Joel about this. That has really helped him grow in his gladness in the singing time by focusing on the actual words that we sing. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, and then you pray it, it is well, it is well with my soul. Sing with gladness, serve with gladness. Smile, enjoy, remind yourself, I am serving people that Jesus shed his blood for. He cares about them so much that he would experience divine wrath on the cross for them. Therefore, what a privilege. This is far higher above my status than I should have. I should be in hell. Now here I am serving God's people. Pray with gladness. 
When we do the partial prayer after the singing time, that's a time the whole church is praying with one person as they pray. Yearn with them. Amen what they're saying. Strive together in prayer. Go for it as we go about it. Receive the preaching with gladness like you do so well. Engage with the message. Enjoy a gospel truth as it comes to you right then and there. Now, we may not be an African-American church, but we are allowed to be vocal and engaged in the message. You are allowed to yell, amen. I'll take it. I love it. Welcome with gladness when you're on for welcome and set up. One of the, maybe one day we won't always have life groups on welcoming, but I like having life groups on welcoming because it reminds us that each one of us gets the privilege to be at that front gate and you have no idea what someone's week has been like. You know, we're, we're, you know we come in, it's, oh, it's great to see you, but you have no idea the pain, the suffering, the, the doubt, the sin, the sorrow, the ups and downs. And when you're unwelcoming, you have the privilege of being Christ's ambassador and smiling and welcoming them and sending them love like Christ is actually welcoming them, them to church. Turning up with gladness, actually being here and, and coming, and coming ready and rowdy, mingling with gladness after the service is finished, sharing your joy in Christ with one another, speaking, meeting, serving, meeting up, and going with gladness, leaving this place and spreading your joy outside the four walls of this church. Psalm 100 verse 1 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It's also a missionary psalm. And like Lewis said last week, joy is the great apologetic. And so we take our gladness and we don't just go, wow, this is great, this is good. And then, you know, like, oh, back into work. It's like, no, we take the gladness with us into the week and we invite others to come to Christ and receive that joy. And if you are a visitor here with us and you think, this, what, what is going on? Well, what is going on is that we have a joyful, happy God. He wants you to be happy. Your sin will not make you happy. It will lead to your eternal misery. And so we want to be a joyful people that say, we have found the source of all joy. It's Jesus Christ. Get to know him. And if you don't yet know Jesus, we invite you to come into his joy today to move toward him and say, I want that joy. Teach me. Give it to me through your son. Now, you may be fearing as a church, oh, man, this sounds like hard work. This is too much, too taxing, too uncomfortable. And I just encourage you, take small steps, little by little. Grow into this. Choose one area of our gathering to pursue joy in it and, and grow in it, to fuel yourself in it. Maybe it's praying with gladness or singing more joyfully. And don't picture God in our midst, like I said at the beginning, yelling, come and worship me. That's not, no, instead, right now God is rejoicing over us, his people, and inviting us into that joy. Christopher Love, a Puritan, said this, God exactly takes notice of, tenderly cherishes, and graciously rewards the least beginnings and the smallest measure of grace in the hearts of his people. And so I invite you, if this all sounds too much, just, just go one step. Position yourself one step 
to more gladness in God. And God will love that and cherish that and cheer you on in that. So friends, we are already a joyful, glad church, personally and corporately. But my hope today is that through laying a biblical and theological foundation, it will cultivate corporate joy that will always mark us. It will never be the relic of our past or the joyful first years of Sovereign Grace Church Parramatta. Instead, we would be glad in our gatherings, fullness of joy, fueled by who God is, what he has done, and who we're worshiping with. And how can we not be glad? I want to read one quote from Octavius Winslow, who is one of the preachers at the opening of Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. And I invite the band up as I, because this is a great quote, and we're going to end on a climax, and we're going to sing that Rejoice song again. And so you guys might as well come up. Um, He said this. In fact, you may as well stand. You may as well stand as I close with these words. The religion of Christ is the religion of joy. The believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. His sins are forgiven. His soul is justified. His person is adopted. His trials are blessings. His conflicts are victories. His death is immortality. His future is a heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, and endless blessedness. With such a God, such a Savior, and such a hope, is he not, ought he not, to be a joyful man? Let us be joyful men, joyful women, joyful children, and a joyful, glad church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing in response.